And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. Awfully uh, excited that today is Labor Day, although hopefully we're not laboring. But you know, you know what I mean. It's it's the, the day, Labor Day, here in the United States. We're going to have a, a great show. You're going to want to stay tuned, even though it's a holiday, and you probably have the day off. Hopefully you have the radio still on, which means... You will enjoy the next couple hours. Uh, this hour is uh, one I've been looking forward to. Uh, my guest is Mark McClish. He uh, was uh, worked for the U.S. Uh, Marshals for 29 years, and he taught for nine years teaching interview techniques for the U.S. Marshals Service Training Academy. And you know that commandment, which I believe is number the, number nine, thou shalt not lie. And our oftentimes our words will betray us, and we need to know how to listen correctly. And Matthew 5.37, it says, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So there is some biblical principles for uh, being honest and telling the truth. And when you don't, your body will and your words will often betray you. It's, I find this whole thing fascinating. He's written four books. Uh, one is called I Know You're Lying. Uh, one is called Don't Be Deceived. One is called 10 Easy Ways to Spot a Liar. And another one is called I Know You Are Lying. Mark is my guest for the full hour. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bill, for having me on your show. I have been looking forward to this, and I was talking during the staff meeting today. Uh, I had you as my guest, and everyone said, no, oh, I'm going to listen. So I'm glad to think <laughs> my colleagues are listening to my show for the very first time. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it is true that we're not supposed to uh, lie. God does not want us lying. And, uh, and Jesus says, let your, your yes be yes and your no be no. But when we're not being truthful, we seem to uh, use a lot of extra words and a lot of extra things that give us away. That is true, because generally speaking, most people don't want to lie. So when they're forced to tell an untruth, they uh, sometimes maybe won't lie, but they'll qualify their statement. Like you said, they'll maybe use extra words or words that qualify their statement. They may not answer the specific question. And so if we listen closely, we can pick up on that. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the techniques, like specific words. Well, in general, you just want to listen to what people are saying. Uh, when Bill Clinton uh, testified, he said, I was bound to be truthful, and I tried to be. Well, the word tried means you attempted, but you didn't do it. You know, I was bound to be truthful, and I was. That would be the best statement. Uh, with Tanya Harding, her involvement in Nancy Kerrigan, attack on Nancy Kerrigan, it Eventually, when she gave a statement, she says, I don't know for sure anything but what's going on at all. Well, she didn't say, I don't know what's going on. She said, I don't know for sure. So a good reporter would ask her right then and there, how many things you're not so sure about? And they could have got that information because two weeks later, she did come out with additional information. So people will, you know, their words will betray them. They'll qualify their statement. And I tell people just in general, listen. But I also give people words to listen for Mm -hmm. that can indicate deception. I call them unique words because these are words that the stuff that people often will use. And one of them is the word never. It's important to remember that the word never does not mean no. Therefore, you cannot substitute the word never for the word no. Uh, you know, for example, uh, did you have a gun when you went to his house? I never had a gun. Because the word never is a negative word, it often fools the interviewer into believing the person has given a good denial, but it's a very poor denial. Mm. The word never means not ever. So when a person says, I have never, they're talking about their entire lifetime. Well, I didn't ask you about your entire lifetime. I asked you about on this specific day, did you have a gun or did you go into the safe or did you take the money, whatever the case would be. So the best answer is no, if they're going to make a denial. But when people use the word never in lieu of the word no, 
you know, that's a big red flag that we want to, you know, pay close attention to. Uh, what would be another unique word? Uh, the word just is a unique word. Now, there are several ways we can use the word just. He is a just person. But most of the time you hear the word just, a person is minimizing their actions. Uh, and so you're looking, it's an indication they may have done more than what they're telling us. In most sentences, the word just is not needed. You know, for example, I just went to McDonald's and came home. Well, they could have said, I went to McDonald's and came home. So why do they use the word just? Mm-hmm. Now, if they're minimizing time just five minutes ago, that's more acceptable. But if they're talking about something they did yesterday, well, now that word just indication, maybe they're minimizing, you know, their actions. Mm-hmm. So, Mark, do you think they... And so we lose... Yeah. They'll sometimes use the word just just to maybe buy them some more ambiguous time? It's possible. Sometimes we'll use some extra words that, to give them a little bit more time to uh, think about, you know, how, how they want to answer this question or how I want to phrase my statement. But a lot of times you hear the word just, not every time, but a lot of times you'll see the person's minimizing their actions. And this is just an indication, not an absolute, but an indication perhaps they've done more than what they're telling us. So um, that, I find that really interesting because I just came home and all the cookies were gone. Um <laughs> <laughs> And there, you might be uh, not be uh, completely honest on that on that one, huh? Well, in an interview setting, we'd ask a few more questions about it. If you're minimizing time, I just walked through the door. You know, that's fine. But I've seen statements where I just came home and found my wife dead, and it turned out, you know, they were being deceptive. Mm-hmm. Now, when you do statement analysis, you are you're just examining words, independent, pretty much of the of the case facts, right? You're just trying to detect deception. That's correct. I tell the interviewer or whoever the party sending me the statement, I don't want to know anything about it. Just let me read it, let it speak to me, and then we can talk about, you know, maybe by you give me some more details, it'll explain a few things or people that I'm reading about. But just first, initially, I just want to read it and see what it says. Mm-hmm. I have done um, a, a whole lot of prison uh, ministry, and I had uh, one night about 30 minutes alone with Susan Smith in, in a South Carolina women's prison and Susan Smith, I don't know if you remember, is the woman who strapped her kids into the backseat of her car and, and it ran it into a, a, a lake, uh, killing yes. her kids. But the story was she was carjacked, and the carjacker took off with her car with her kids in the backseat. And so then for the next right. nine days or so, I think she was pleading with the police in the community, and, and her husband was making reference to uh, their children in the present tense and every time she would make reference it was always in the past tense she did talk about in the past tense uh, my children wanted me they needed me and now i can't help them well it should be my children want me they need me but as you mentioned she referred to them in the past tense and then the other thing she did was she had changing pronouns like you mentioned she said it was this one male suspect that uh, drove off with her two kids but then later on, she gave a when she was give, talking to the press, she used the pronoun they. I wish that they would bring them home. Well, where does the they come from? And changing pronouns is an indication of deception. In this case, from a singular to a plural. And as soon as I heard that, combined with her other statements, I knew she had something to do with the uh, disappearance of her kids. I didn't know if they were still alive or not at that time, but I knew you know she was making up this story about the carjacking and. In fact, the following day after she gave that statement with the pronoun they, she finally admitted you know, that she had made it up and had drowned her two boys. Mm-hmm. I'm real curious about uh, another technique that you have called uh, order, the order in which things show up. I'd love for you to say more about that. 
Yeah, we can learn a lot by looking at the order that people mention things. I was driving down the road one day. I saw a sign for played against sports, and it said used and new sporting goods equipment. But notice the order, used and new, not new and used. So it tells us that they have more used equipment than they do new equipment. And if you go into a played against sports, you'll find that to be true. Uh, O.J. Simpson, in his letter, supposedly a suicide letter, but he wrote about his relationship with Nicole, and he said we had a few downs and ups. Well, most people write that ups and downs. Because you like to think you have more ups in your life than you do downs. But in this case, even though he said, unlike what's been in the press, we had a great relationship, his words betrayed him when he said we had a few downs and ups. Because that indicates they had a very rocky relationship, and that's what the 911 calls by Nicole and the better photographs of Nicole would indicate. And so order is, is very important, and it shows up in the Bible you know, it, a few times you know, that I've noticed. Um, in Acts chapter 15, Luke talks about uh, Paul and Barnabas. I think it was the first missionary journey. And we're all familiar with Paul. You know, he, he had a conversion experience unlike anybody else. Uh, he authored 13 books of the New Testament. You know, Barnabas, we don't know so much about. He's only mentioned a few times. He, he didn't author any books of the Bible. So it's very easy for us to view Paul as being a giant in the Christian faith and Barnabas not having you know, quite the same stature. But in God's eyes, we're all equal when it comes to performing his work, and we see this in Acts chapter 15. Uh, Luke, the author of, um, or, yeah, Luke, the author of Acts, uh, in verse 2, writes about Paul and Barnabas, puts Paul first, Barnabas second. And we expect him to keep continually refer to him as Paul and Barnabas, Paul being more well-known. But the next time he mentions them together in verse 12, he writes it as Barnabas and Paul. The next time he mentions them in verse 22, it's Paul and Barnabas. Verse 25, Barnabas and Paul. Verse 35, Paul and Barnabas. Throughout the entire chapter, he keeps going back and forth. And he probably didn't do this consciously. It was probably God through the Holy Spirit having him interchange these names, and I believe just to show us that you know, yeah, Paul is is good, but Barnabas is important too, and so it's just interesting to see the order like that. Mm-hmm. Now, Mark, when we talk about uh, verb tenses, I I find that to be particularly interesting. I was watching with some interest the Jesse Smollett case of the story of um, this actor that got you know jumped uh, at two thirty in the morning in Chicago uh, in January when it was sixteen below, and when I was listening to him. Uh, recount the story in an interview with uh, Robin Roberts. He said, um, I see the attacker. He punches me, and I punched him back. And I thought, as you are telling your story, wouldn't it have been smart for him to say, if it really happened, I saw the attacker, and he punched me? Absolutely. Yeah, when a story's coming from, a truthful story is coming from memory. Yes. So as a, pers- as a person tells that story, they'll have their memory to rely upon and as we're thinking about it, they will describe it the way it's happening or happened, and everything would be in the past tense, as you said. But when they get to that portion of their statement that they don't want to talk about, well, it's no longer coming from memory. It's coming from their imagination. So sometimes they slip up, and they will use uh, pa- or, um, present tense verbs. And as you point out, he said, I see. It should be I saw the attacker. Uh, punches me in the face, right in the face. should be punching me right in the face. And you know, Later on, he said, fighting, 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 not I fought him. So there's a lot of present tense language in his statement. And it's a strong indication, possibly of poor grammar skills, but that didn't seem to be the case here, that his story was not coming from memory and he was making it up. Yeah, because when it's coming from memory, you have your tenses in the right place. 
You should anyway. Yeah, correct. And some people make mistakes. Uh, maybe there's one present tense verb, so sure. I'm going to look at it, but but not say, hey, you're lying to me. And then sometimes it is due to poor grammar skills. And we have other things we look at, their education level. Is English their first language that we have to factor in as well? But it's just one of the techniques that we want to recognize that everything should be in the past tense based on the rules of grammar. Mm-hmm. Mark Pocish is my guest. He's written a number of books on lying and deception. He worked for the U.S. Marshals for 26 years. If you have a question, I bet he'd be willing to take it. Send me a text to 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome back to the show. My guest, Mark McClish, uh, is with me today. He's a, an expert at statement analysis, worked for the U.S. Marshals for 26 years, and can very easily detect deception and liars. And Ninth Commandment is, thou shall not lie. So when people... Uh, will use all of their knowledge, they will oftentimes offer more information and betray themselves with their own words if you know how to listen. And I find that fascinating. So, Mark, I, I want to get back to a couple of unique words. Let's talk about the word with, because that that can be a word that can show deception pretty easily, can it? It can. That's a very common word, and we use it every day. But you have to recognize that the word with always indicates distance within the statement. Uh, for example, I had a friend uh, one Christmas season, I asked him, hey, what would you do this weekend? He said, I went Christmas shopping with my wife. Notice I's at the beginning of the sentence, wife is at the end of the sentence. I went Christmas shopping with my wife. So I said to him, you don't want to go, did you? And he said, no. <laughs> yeah. Because what you're looking for is, is there a better way of saying it? And he could have said, my wife and I went Christmas shopping. That means he's a willing participant. So the word with always indicates distance. What you're looking for is that distance appropriate. And like I said, we use it every day. It shows distance, and the distance is appropriate. But if there is a better way of saying it, then that's the way it should be. So if I'm interviewing a suspect, trying to account for his uh, alibi, his whereabouts, and he says, I went bowling with Joe, well, why do you say it that way versus Joe and I went bowling? Because maybe he didn't go bowling with Joe. It's hard for him to say it, so he unknowingly uses the word with. And so it is a word to listen for. It does show up a lot in our language. Um, and sometimes there's no better way of saying it without being very awkward, so we have to use the word with. But, you know, is is it appropriately used is what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. So if you are trying to create a distance from a, a situation or a person, you may separate your name and the other person's name as far as possible just to try to uh, create as much distance as you can. Right. You see the word with in any statement, you'll see something before the word and something after the word. And the word with is what's creating that distance. Mm-hmm. There was a case, and I think it was you that talked about it, about a gentleman who said he just came home and ran back to the master bedroom to find what appeared to be a bloody crime scene. And I thought, he's talking about his own house and his own uh, his own bedroom, like some kind of floor plan. Yeah, he yeah he said he ran back to the master bedroom. You're right, and that's language a, a real estate agent would use. Right, but we'd expect we'd expect him to say he came home and, and 
he said, you know, nobody was there, and I ran back. He should have said I ran back to my bedroom or our bedroom. That shows possession. The pronouns my or our, but he showed no possession. And so I'm asking myself, well, why is that? Well, it's an indication when he walked through that front door, he already knew what was back there. He knew there was a bloody crime scene. Naturally, you don't want to associate yourself with that. So he not only referred to it as the master bedroom versus our bedroom or my bedroom. And eventually the police interviewed his coworkers. Anything unusual about him lately? Well, lately he's been taking the trash out that the dumpster. He never does that. So they looked in the landfill and found his wife's body, but never found his daughter's body. But he mm. was convicted of killing his wife and daughter. Yeah, and I know some people's, of th- people's words will betray them. Yeah, and unfortunately, some of the work you do involves some pretty grisly murders and uh, things, uh, subjects that are hard to talk about. I did follow uh, with some interest uh, Chris Watts, who was a, a guy in Colorado who ended up killing his wife and kids. And I did find it interesting when I was watching him talk to the police uh, like a day or two afterwards. He was speaking with this, you know, this kind of this almost feigned remorse of, "I came, I came home, and it was a ghost town." And uh, he said, um, I, I, just, I just have no idea where they are. And I go, do you ever have no idea where your spouse is? Do you, do you, do you ever have no clue? Yeah, that's a phrase to listen for. No idea, no clue. Sometimes they'll say it, and he said it as no inclination or the faintest idea. Because yeah. most people do have an idea or a clue on just about everything, you know, an opinion. Or they have an opinion, I right. have not. Yeah, I have an idea. We can send astronauts to Mars. It probably won't work. I'm not a rocket scientist, but, you know, I got an, <laughs> right. I got an idea. Right. So when people say, I've got no clue, no idea, that light bulb in your head should turn on. They probably do have an idea. Now, sometimes people will say that, and the truth is they do have an idea. They just don't want to share it. So they just say, I have no idea. But if you really quiz them on it, they probably would admit, yeah, they've got some idea. And that's what he said. He said, I have no inclination and then he said, I have no idea, you know, where his uh, family was. And so that's our was our first clue because he looked pretty convincing as a grieving father, uh, grieving husband. Uh, but it slowly slipped out. He used that phrase, I have no idea. And then later he talked about, I think it was his oldest daughter, Bella, in the past tense. Uh, she was It was something like she was supposed to start kindergarten. Um, he used the was what should be she's she's gonna start kindergarten we need to find her that's another reason to find her but he referred to her i forget the exact phrasing but in the past tense Mm -hmm. because he knew she was dead so again verb tenses sometimes give it away as well yeah and he couldn't shut that part off could he i mean he knew that she wasn't alive yet he's acting as if she was and he was saying she was going to be starting kindergarten a kindergarten how does he know that yeah i mean he's doing his best to, to uh, you know, try to make it a truthful statement sound believable, <laughs> right. but eventually it comes out. Now we know that some people are better liars than others. Some people give us a lot of indications. Some people don't give as many. Every once in a while, we want to say, "Well, he's a good liar," and I say, "No, there's no such thing as a good liar. They're just bad listeners. Mm, if you listen closely, it'll start coming out. Maybe not as many deceptive indicators, but but they'll be there." Yeah. All right, Mark. Very difficult to give a, a lengthy statement and not show that it's deceptive. Yeah. All right, what about when you answer a question with a question? This one happens a lot. Uh, when a person answers a question with any type of question, it's a strong indication they were asked a sensitive question. Now, the exception might be, you know, can you repeat the question? You know, I didn't hear you. Right. But most likely, it's still an indication they heard you. It's just a sensitive question. And so, as an interviewer, I want to find out why is this question so sensitive. 
but it's also sometimes used as a stall tactic to give the, the person, the subject, time to think about how am I going to answer this question. And that's easy to see, you know, when the question is, you know, did you take the money? And they say, did I take the money? No. Well, they asked the question, but they didn't wait for the interviewer to respond to their question because it was simply a stall tactic to give them time to think about their answer. Mm-hmm. Why do you have to think about your answer? I mean, the best answer is to say no, but why do you got to think about it? And so maybe they took the money. Maybe they know who took the money. And so that's what they're thinking. Well, I know who took it. I didn't take it. So maybe knows a truthful answer, but it's still a sensitive question. And so that, that, that's a frequent one. It comes up a lot where people answer a question with any type of question. It means you ask a sensitive question. Mm-hmm. Mark, what happens when somebody tries to run roughshod over you? So you say, Did you, uh, are you using drugs? <laughs> what? You're asking me if I'm using drugs? What kind of question is that? I mean... I can't even, I'm not even going to talk to you about that. That's, I can't believe you'd ask that. Yeah, well, sometimes they'll answer the question with a question and, and as they ramble on. But then what they haven't done is answer the specific question. And, and this is another big one that happens a lot. Most of the time, people give us an answer if we ask them a question. But you have to determine, did they answer your specific question? Because if they haven't answered the specific question, they absolutely are withholding information because they haven't answered the question you asked of them. Sometimes it's pretty obvious. A lot of times, you know, with our politicians, they try to make it sound like they answered the question, but if you really listen to it, yeah, they gave them maybe a good answer, gave a truthful answer, but they didn't answer the specific question. And so that's a strong indication of a deception. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that gets, it, gets me back to your, your comment about the word never. That's a way of uh, dodging the question without actually answering it. Right. In their mind, it's still you know, a deceptive answer, but in, in the deceptive person, in their mind, it's easier to say, oh, I never did it versus no, I didn't do it. And so that's what they go with. But we realize we haven't technically answered my specific question about this specific date and time because you use the word never, which means not ever. Now, in an open statement, a person can use the word never. I've never gone skydiving. Right. You know, for me, that's a truthful statement. Hopefully, that will always be a truthful statement. But that's how you use the word never correctly in an open statement, but not when you're answering specific questions. Mm-hmm. Mark, how do you watch the news at night when you're listening to people make statements all night? I, I, your head must be almost exploding. I got my DVD recorder <laughs> always going. <laughs> I bet, because so you want to review the statements. In class. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'll rewind them and listen to them, and sometimes I write them down, and then sometimes I'll actually keep the video portion because I'll show videos as well in my uh, classes. Yeah, yeah. All right, Mark McClish is my uh, guest. We're talking about uh, lying and deception, and a bunch of questions are coming in, so I'm going to address those after the break. But if you have a question, let me know what it is, 877-933-2484. Be right back. presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Welcome back. Mark McClish is my guest. We're talking about lying and deception. He's written four books on it. He's a former U.S. Marshal who now trains people how to detect de- deception. 
So um, recently, Mark, uh, I saw Joe Biden being interviewed by Mika Brzezinski on the news, and she said, would you please go on the record with the American people? Did you sexually assault Tara Reid? And Biden said, no, it is not true. I'm saying unequivocally it never, never happened, and it didn't. It never happened. And he gave a good answer because he said no. I mean, he used the word never later on. Had he said never right off the bat, that would be more deceptive. But he did say no. He answered the question. But the key there is is that just before that interview, he released a, a – he did an op-ed in some mag, online magazine. And in it, he talked about how there were allegations of sexual assault and sexual harassment. But she only asked him about the sexual assault. And so I believe what people tell me, you know, and I believe he didn't sexually assault Tara Reid, but – Based on her statements as well, when I looked at her first interview, you know, I think something did happen, and I think what happened was he may have sexually harassed her, and that's why, you know, he initially was kind of quiet about the situation stuff. But he did say I didn't sexually assault her, but I think based on both of their statements, what maybe happened was there was some sexual harassment there. Mm-hmm. What about uh, question? Uh, are there nonverbals? Are there sound gestures people make when they're about to lie, like sniffling or anything? Uh, some people will do that. Uh, the most common thing to look for with with nonverbal gestures is a person's hands. What are they doing with their hands? And you know, when a little kid tells a lie, he might cup his hand over his mouth, like he knows he wasn't <laughs> supposed to say that. Yeah. Well, as adults, we know not to do that, but it's almost instinctual to want to bring the hand up to the face. So when people touch their chin, rub their lips, uh, touch their nose, that's a sign that maybe what they just said is not truthful or the, or the complete truth, that something's going on. Uh, now, again, you know, if a person, you know, has an itch or something, maybe that's what they're doing. Then mm-hmm. again, why is that itch there? You know, some people, uh, the back of their neck gets kind of hot. So when people rub the back of their neck, that's an indication Maybe something's going on when people, you know, comb their hair, run their ha- fingers through their hair. It's called grooming. You know, if my if I look good, my answers look good. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the thought there. So, Interesting. you know, a lot can be gained by watching a person's hands. If they cross their arms, indication. Again, these are just indications that they're closed off. Mm-hmm. So maybe from that point on, they're not going to be as, as cooperative or as truthful. Yeah. Mark, a listener asks, uh, how do you deal with someone who embellishes or adds or exaggerates uh, lies details to try to sound more important or relevant do you deal with them gently or head-on i think this is regarding well, like a teenager probably yeah a non-criminal I mean, yeah not a non in an interview setting i'm going to ask for a statement give me a statement what happened then we ask specific questions but we're talking to as you mentioned perhaps a teenager or something we're not usually asking for a statement we're just questioning them but, yeah, it is a sign if they're embellishing some. I mean, sometimes for some people it'll be pretty obvious that, you know, they're going overboard with it. Um, and so it's something we want to pick up on and, and maybe ask a few more questions about those areas that maybe they're embellishing, trying to convince you they're being truthful. You know, when people use certain words and phrases such as, you know, I swear to God or honestly God, again, it's indication that maybe they're, they're trying to convince you they're being truthful. And so we ask a few more questions about that. What about eye contact? Do they sometimes uh, look at you almost for too long to try to see if you're buying what they're saying? Well, yeah, if a person stares at you, that's uh, abnormal. I mean, most people maintain eye contact, but then they'll look away briefly and then resume eye contact. So if a person's just kind of staring at you, that kind of jumps out because, you know, one, it's kind of creepy. But, yeah, (laughs) maybe they're trying to convince you 
you know, I've, I've, I've heard you're supposed to maintain eye contact. So that's what I'm doing. Well, that's true, but that's not, uh, you know, what we're talking about here. It's the person who looks away at when he answers the question, that's the one that indicates many possible deception. So yeah, if they're, if they're looking at you too much or not enough, then that's something we want to pick up on as well. Mm-hmm. I think Mark, when I'm watching news, uh, I think that oftentimes people in politics or, uh, they want to they want to say what they want to say regardless of the question that gets asked. And that gets very frustrating because they sometimes will just take their agenda and they'll run with it. And the questions will never get asked. Does that frustrate you as well? And and when you listen to that and see that, what are you thinking? It frustrates me, you know, for the, you know, like reporters, sometimes they'll ask a question. And as you mentioned, the person will just start answering something else. Sometimes they'll say, I'll get to your question. Okay. But too many times, uh, reporters, journalists, they'll ask the question, the person gives an answer, but they don't answer that specific question, and then they just move on with the next question. Or this happens a lot with journalists. They'll ask a compound question. They'll ask two questions, and usually what happens is the person only answers one of the questions. They'll answer the last one that was asked of them, mm-hmm. but they don't answer the first question, and so some information is lost there. And I'm like, are you a serious interviewer, or are you just trying to put on a show here? You know, and so I tell people, don't ask compound questions. Ask them one at a time. Ask your question. Listen to their answer. Evaluate it. Then you can move on to the next question. Yeah. So I've I've seen that many times before, where uh, an interviewer will ask a two part question, maybe because they want to just get the questions out all at once. But then all of a sudden, there seems to be a lot of leeway for a person to dodge one of the two questions. Yes. Happens a lot. Now, in some situations, you're at the White House, a reporter there, they get called on. It's Maybe it's kind of rare they get called on, so they may ask two questions. They're trying to get them in. That's why they're doing it. Or sometimes they'll say, and I have a follow-up question, which is the best way to do it. Ask one question, but let the person know, I do have a second question, and so hopefully they'll call on you the second time you know, and answer that. But sometimes that's why they ask these compound questions. But in an interview setting, no, you shouldn't be doing that. Mm-hmm. Mark, what are some of uh, the the high-profile cases that listeners might uh, be intrigued with some of the statement analysis that you've done? Well, some of them I get asked to help out, and others I just do, you know, like Casey Anthony. I wasn't asked to work on that case, but that was, you know, so intriguing that, and and she's talking that we got to take a look at her statements. And and what you find there is, you know, she's, made up this story about uh, dropping her daughter off at the nanny's apartment and then couldn't find either one of them and didn't tell anybody until 31 days later when her mother said, where's my granddaughter been for the past month? But in her statement to the police about what happened, it was a little bit of a lengthy statement, but it was all in the present tense, you know, all present tense verbs, which is just, uh, you know, crazy. If it's coming from memory, even just 31 days ago, everything should be in the past tense. And so that was a big indication that this isn't coming from memory. You know, you're making up this story. And so she displayed, she used uh, in her jailhouse, in, or in, from the jailhouse, she was talking to her family on the phone. All the calls were recorded, and she said, I, I think it was, I have no clue where Kaylee is. Well, now, wait a second. I thought she was with the nanny. That's your first clue. I realize you don't know where the nanny's at, but that is a clue. But see, when people say, as we talked earlier, I have no clue or no idea, they're acting like they know absolutely nothing. And that's why it's just hard to believe. Rarely can a person honestly say that. And so she gave off several different indications of deception, you know, if, if just listening to uh, to what she was saying. 
What is it about the number three in liars? Well, the number three, most of my techniques are based on the English language. Verb tenses, pronouns, you know, what words actually mean. But the number three is more anecdotal. Uh, over the years, myself and other interviewers have noticed that when people have to come up with a number, deceptive people, they will often use the number three or a number that begins with three. You know, so, yeah, you know, I was robbed at $300. I left the house at three o'clock. Uh, anything to use the number three, take a closer look at it. And just an indication of deception. If, if the only indication of deception in a person's statement was they used the number three, I would conclude it's a truthful statement. You know, three men attacked me. Well, if we ask them how many men attacked you, if it was three, that's what they're going to tell us. But when you hear that number three, and now if people don't know the exact number, they'll use the number three. And so they're not being deceptive, but again, we can't take it as being uh, the gospel truth and that this is an accurate number. So we ask a few more questions about it. That's interesting um, that that would surface as a number that would create suspicion. Um, I'd love for yeah, you to I'm say, not sure why. yeah, I, I don't know why either. It's just sure why it is. Um, you know, one, one's not enough or one, they won't believe two's not enough. You know, let's go with three. What I tell people is a lot of nursery rhymes and fairy tales that we heard as kids use the number three, you know, Goldilocks and the three bears, uh, three little pigs, three blind mice, a lot of subtle references to number three, Jack climbed the beanstalk three times, Rumpel Steelson spun straw in the gold three times, gave three guesses at his name. And we all know if you read that genie's magic lamp, you're going to get your three wishes. And so this may be we've associated the number three with things that we as adults know are not true. When we have to come up with a number that we know is not true, three is a number that pops into our head. And I just show lots of examples of uh, prominent people, you know, using the number three that were that didn't know the number or turned out they were, you know, being deceptive. Yeah. Do you have an example there, Mark? Um, Anthony Weiner, uh, uh-huh. the New York City congressman. I remember him. Yeah. Yeah. He was. Um, well, he was te- he's a terrible liar. He would be asked questions about, you know, did you send these text messages? I think he was sexting to a young woman. He was. And he would never never answer that question. And a lot of reporters realize he's not answering the question. But finally, uh, he admitted that he did send them, and he resigned from Congress. That was uh, 2011. Then in 2013, he was running for governor of uh, – or the mayor, I think, of New York City, trying to get back into the – political world. Mm-hmm. And while I was on a campaign trail, it was discovered that after he resigned from Congress, he continued to tweet young women. So a reporter asked him, since you resigned from Congress, how many t- women have you tweeted? And his answer was, I believe it wasn't any more than three. And so is he saying three because he knows it's a lot more than that? I'm going to use a deceptive number. Is he saying three because he doesn't know the exact number? Either way, we can't believe you know, that's an accurate number. Now, there is one exception to the number three, and that has to do with alcohol. And every police officer knows, you know, the deceptive number when it comes to alcohol is two. I only had two drinks, officer, or a couple drinks. But that's the that's the number deceptive people use when it comes to alcohol. But other than that, you're listening for the number three. Mm-hmm. Mark, when Congressman uh, Weiner was asked on uh, live television that question, I remember him um, kind of going into this uh, faux outrage, which probably wasn't fake. It was probably very real. But when I think it was Jonathan Carl from ABC News asked him that question, he said, I am outraged you'd be asking that. I have a family, um, almost like he's trying to bully him into feeling shame that he even asked the question. 
Yeah, and that's what your listener who sent the question was asking earlier about. Here's somebody trying to make it sound like, you know, I didn't do it, but that's all they're doing, making it sound like versus saying, no, I didn't send those texts or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Mark McClish is my guest. We're going to take a little break. If you have a question, let us know what it is. I'd love to hear from you. 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. You're listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome back to the show. My guest is Mark McClish. Worked for the U.S. Marshals for 26 years. Teaches interrogations. Been doing that uh, for nine years. And has written uh, four books on deception and lying. Uh, Mark, I have a question. Uh, What about people that truly just believe their own lies? And stay so committed to it. I think of, uh, I think of. Uh, well, I'll let you answer. But uh, is it the same when they're truly believing their own lies? It makes it a little bit harder to determine if they're being truthful or deceptive if, if they believe their lies. Even if you put them on a polygraph, you know, if they believe it, then they may be able to pass that polygraph. Uh, but people's words will still betray them. Again, there's several ways you can phrase a statement, and they will unknowingly phrase it a certain way because even though they believe their lies, they still, you know, deep down know what the truth is. And based on how they phrase that statement, it's still going to show up, you know, show up. They may not give as many deceptive indicators, but but they'll be there. Mm-hmm. What, what's the most common trip up among the five that we talked about? What, you know, special words or unique words or tenses or um, what, what would be the most common one? Probably the most common one would be some of the unique words because people don't, you know, people know everything should be in the past tense. That that still may slip up, but people know certain things like this. I know to answer the question, but some of these unique words never just as a few other ones I teach, even number three, uh, those people don't realize what they're doing. And so, you know, again, their words will betray them. Like the word actually always means a person's comparing two thoughts. And so people will use that word a lot, and you can see the comparison. No big, no, that's fine. Did you buy a new truck? Actually, I bought a new car. So they're comparing car with truck. But when people use the word actually, and we don't know what they're comparing, then absolutely there's some undisclosed information there. In their mind, they're making a comparison. So when they give a statement, they unknowingly use that word actually. And so it's these unique words that a lot of times will, people will slip up on. Mm-hmm. Question from a listener. Um, we discussed lying in the Bible study last week when Rahab was asked if the spies were in her house and she said no. Was that not a lie? Are we justified in lying if it is to save someone from harm? I would say yes. The Bible has examples of it there. I think King David, I believe, uh, lied. When I, when, I think when he was on the run from uh, Saul, uh, Abraham had his wife lie, say, you're my sister, you know, so, so they don't... Uh, kill me and, and take you. And so, uh, yeah, there are some lies in the Bible. I mean, I think, you know, I guess, you know, God looks at our heart. So that's, what's the purpose? If you're lying because you did something wrong and you're trying to avoid punishment, well, yeah, that's a sin. But if you're lying, um, whether it's a white lie or, you know, or something along those lines, then I think, uh, you know, that's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, interesting you brought up white lie. Uh, there's probably no such thing. A lie's a lie, right? Yeah, a lie's a lie, but, you know, if your wife asks you, how do I look today? <laughs> we all know how to answer that question. Yeah. So. <laughs> did, your, did your kids get away with anything? Uh, not too much. I'm sure they did some things, but uh, it was funny because I wrote my first book. My oldest son was uh, for, he's probably like 13, uh, and his younger brother was, was about uh, 10 at the time. And so he was reading some of the transcript for it as I'm writing it, and then he would use it on his brother. He didn't answer the specific question or something <laughs> like that. It's uh-huh. funny. I just find that uh, very interesting that your kids using your techniques on each other. All right, uh, my producer Rebecca's got a question for you. And I dubbed this uh, this whole conversation, Mark, Parenting 101, just so okay. you know. I'm learning a lot of this. Uh, but I was wondering about how we handle deception, maybe not in an interrogation setting, but in conversation. If we start to notice some of these habits cropping up or some of these patterns, it, it seems pretty hard to address that head on. There's a pressure to believe what somebody is telling us. It can be hard to to confront someone about that. Do you have any thoughts on ways that we can, you know, expect that type of integrity? And, and if we think someone's deceiving us, how we should react? Well, what I tell people is you do have to turn the techniques on and off. And by that, I mean in an interview setting or for just watching television, watching somebody being interviewed, a politician, turn it on. Listen to every word they say. Now, when we're talking to a friend, a colleague. Yeah, we're participating in the conversation, but we're also thinking about what am I going to have for lunch today? What am I doing this weekend? And so other things are going through our mind, and so we don't hinge on every single word you know, that they're saying. But as you practice the techniques, you start to pick up on things, and, and even though in a general conversation a person may use a certain word that indicates possible deception, and like I said, that light bulb in your head turns on. So how do we handle that? Well, in an interview setting, we're going to ask follow-up questions. What's going on here? you're talking to a friend or colleague, you're not going to ask follow-up questions. You just realize that maybe this is one word, possible deception, but that's the only word they use throughout the whole conversation. And so maybe they have a habit of using that phrase. There is different you know, vernacular around, around the U.S. And so that's one way we can handle it. We just kind of ignore it. We realize, well, that's just an indication of deception. They're not giving me lots of indications of deception. Now, if we wanted to, if it was something important we're asking them about and we felt like they they used a deceptive word or, you know, people, you know, the most common form of lying is by omission, not telling us everything that happened. And so what happens is people use certain words and phrases such as, you know, later on, which means they just skipped over something in their story. And so you may pick up on that and realize, well, you know, you're withholding some information. This is what you're thinking to yourself. So maybe – Again, if it's just a friendly conversation, you try to back them up in their story. You know, well, what did you do, you know, before that or something? And try to find out what that information is that they uh, skipped over. Mm-hmm. And if after the, if there's no details after the, the, the big incident, if there's no further details, if the story ends r- real abruptly, there's probably an indication that they're not being completely honest. That, is that true? Yeah, we have what's called a story breakdown, and this is used more for a written statement because you can actually highlight it. You know, you look in the story, have a beginning, the incident itself, they'll have an ending. And as you point out, most stories have a significant ending. There's always something else going on. Uh, but when people make up a statement, this never happened, they're just going to make it up. They usually tell you what happened before. They'll talk about the incident itself. But it ends very abruptly because there was no ending, and they forget to create 
a fictitious ending. So when the stories end very quickly, um, that's an indication that perhaps, you know, this isn't a truthful statement. Yeah, because there's so much that would naturally occur after an incident involving phone calls to friends, relatives, you know, uh, you know, 911 maybe. Uh, there would be right. all kinds of details that if they stop the story right at the, after the incident, you might want to question whether or not it happened. Yeah, because a deceptive person using isn't smart enough to say, well, now I need to include a significant ending. They set the stage for their bogus tale. They tell you about it, but then, like I said, it usually ends very quickly. And so by looking at the breakdown, how much time they devote these three segments, the bottom line is a truthful story should have a significant ending. Mm-hmm. Mark, we just have a couple of minutes left, and I would, I'd love to uh, hear, I know you were with uh, Secret Service during uh, President Reagan's first term in office, weren't you? I was. And then um, what was that like? It was good. He was a good president. If you came, he came walking by, he would always uh, acknowledge you. Uh, one day I was standing post in the South Grounds, behind, in front of the door that leads to the South Grounds. It, it opened up. I turned around. It was President Reagan came out with his dog, Lucky. Now, surprised because there's no agents with him. Those guys follow him everywhere. So he must have told him, I'm just walking my dog because the grounds themselves <laughs> are secure. Mm-hmm. That's what my job was. And the other reason I was surprised is over the radio, they let us know of his whereabouts. His, his code name was Rawhide. Mm-hmm. So it would be Rawhide Oval Office, whatever. Well, nobody said Rawhide. He's coming up behind you. But I said, good morning, Mr. President. And he said, good morning. It was in the springtime. He dropped the leash, let the dog run free. The dog was lucky. And the president stood next to me, and we had a conversation, you know, one-on-one. Across from us is, a, is their driveway. There's a circular driveway that encompasses the south grounds. And on the other side was a pile of snow about two feet high left over from last year's or from winter plowing. He looked at me. He looked at that snow, and he jogged across that driveway and up to that little pile of snow and gave the old football kick and sent snow flying everywhere. <laughs> and I just had to chuckle to myself, you know, and then he continued on walking down the road, you know, towards his dog. But very, very good president to work for. Very mm-hmm. friendly. And then you were with the U.S. Marshals for 26 years and that now uh, the Marshal Service Training Academy for nine. Is that correct? Taught the, yes, taught the academy for nine yep. years. Yep. And I taught interviewing techniques. And that's when I honed my uh, – did some studies on deceptive language and honed the uh, statement analysis techniques. Yeah. And give uh, our listeners a little uh, journey into your spiritual faith. Well, I grew up in a Christian home, went to church from, from day one, I can remember. We moved around several times, and we always ended up living in this, going to church in a neighboring city. So I always had like a 30-minute drive to get home. And one day, we were driving home. My brother and I were in the back seat. I sat up, leaned forward, put my arms in the front of the back seat, or the front seat, because in those days, we didn't wear seatbelts. And, and I asked my parents, what was the pastor talking about? And I was referring to uh, the invitation. And so when we got home, my, my dad opened up the, uh, the Bible and showed me the road of salvation, the plan of salvation. I prayed the sinner's prayer and was saved. Age of 12, you know, my life didn't change drastically. I was 12 years old, but I continued to grow in faith. And then uh, when I graduated from high school, I was looking for a college to go to. I know I wanted to go to a Christian college. I thought I grew up in Ohio. I thought I was going to go to Cedarville. But the last minute, I decided to go to a Messiah College, which is near uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And I think the reason I went there is because that's where I met uh, my wife, Pam. And we married a few years later. Uh, my goal was always to go into to federal law enforcement, and the Lord blessed me there. But we stayed active in the church, uh, deacon board, teaching Sunday school. But we really enjoyed working with the youth. And for two different churches, we had an opportunity to be the youth ministers in, in a lay position. 
because I too moved around you know with my career, and so we always enjoyed doing that. And then uh, I retired in 2009, started my own business. As you mentioned, I travel around uh, teaching interviewing techniques, and the Lord has blessed that. The downside is we're on the road a lot, so I'm not home that much, not be able to be as active or committed you know, to doing things with the church, but we still, you know, attend and, and contribute as much as we can. Yeah. If you were going to uh, recommend uh, your most accessible book for listeners, what would it be? Um, if you're interested in strictly the techniques, how to learn, I would say the second book, Don't Be Deceived. The, the majority of the book is a statement analysis techniques, but also a few chapters on body language and handwriting analysis. Now, my first book, I Know You're Lying, half the book is statement analysis techniques and half the book is analyzed some high profile cases from back mm-hmm. in uh, that book came out in 2001 so you're talking oj simpson yeah. bill clinton yeah and a few others yep mark it's been a delight thank you so much for doing the show thanks for having me on bill yep. mark mcclish has been my guest we'll take a short break and be right back mm-hmm. 